Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. When we think of American cultural dominance, a few things come to mind. We think of blue jeans, rock and roll, Hollywood movies, and of course, Coca-Cola. When we imagine the U.S.'s cultural power slithering over the rest of the globe like a globy, slithery thing, this stuff is shorthand for American hegemony, for good or for ill. But in the case of Coca-Cola, it's possible that we're maybe thinking of the wrong brand. Yes, Coca-Cola is popular all over the world. Yes, it is one of the most recognized brands on the planet. Yes, nowadays, it certainly is a pretty good symbol for Americaness spreading itself all over everywhere. But, long before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and long before the collapse of the Soviet Union, and well before the end of the Cold War, there was another different brand of soft drink that made its way behind the Iron Curtain and brought American consumerism to Soviet-style communism. This is the story of Soviet Pepsi. It involves a 1950s-style Roomba, two different cultural expositions, a very big barter deal, vodka, Rambo 3, and a soft drink company briefly becoming a military superpower. Let's start in 1959. 1959 was a weird moment in the Cold War. The U.S. and the Soviet Union invaded each other, but in nice ways, with two exhibitions in each of their largest cities. It was this moment where each country decided that it would be in their own mutual best interest to have some kind of cultural exchange, to become less strange to each other, and to show off what they had to offer the world. So, in the summer of 1959... The Soviet Union put on a show in New York City, in the New York Coliseum specifically. It was called the Soviet National Exhibition. It featured Soviet technology and culture and art. There were lots of Soviet realist paintings and sculptures. There was a Soviet fashion show, Russian folk music. And, in particular, the USSR showed off its space program and its rocket technology. At the time the Soviet Union was beating the United States into space, and it was very proud of that fact and very eager to point that out to American citizens. American citizens, for their part, were curious. The exhibition was very, very popular. It ran between June and August of 1959, and during that time, over a million attendees showed up to see what America's biggest geopolitical rival was all about. Some were curious, some were critical and wrote things in the guest books like how Russian folk music was for the birds. Some wondered how honest the exhibition actually was and whether or not it was actually depicting Soviet day-to-day -day life in an authentic manner. But nevertheless, it was one of the few depictions that many Americans would get of the Soviet Union from the Soviets themselves. At the same time, in Moscow, there was the American National Exhibition, and that was a kind of mirror image of its Soviet counterpart. At the American National Exhibition, 
you had all kinds of displays about art and industry, that you had all kinds of abstract art on display, which clashed significantly with Soviet-style realism. There were all kinds of consumer goods and electronics, many that the Soviet Union didn't have yet. The Americans were particularly proud of showing off color television, the current newest mind-blowing form of media. There was also a lot of fanciful technology and imagined technology. The American National Exhibition didn't just show off stuff from the American present. It also displayed a kind of 1950s retro future. So not just stuff that the United States had to offer, but stuff that the United States imagined it had to offer in the near future. This included a robotic, autonomous, floor-cleaning robot, essentially a 1950s Roomba, which was not actually functional and would not become reality for another several decades. But I want to point that out because this was an impossible future back in 1959, and now Roombas are just ordinary things that we trip over and our cats take naps on. Technological progress, everyone. But anyway, the Soviet National Exhibition in New York was largely free of international incidents. There were no brawls between the American side and the Soviet side. There were no miniature wars that burst out. None of that. It was like a big, fun World's Fair situation, except there was only one country exhibiting at this World's Fair. The American Exhibition, however, did have something of a flare-up. One of the installations at the American National Exhibition was a model home designed to represent a typical American dwelling, and the idea of this model home is that it would sell for $14,000, which would be about $100,000 in today money. This was supposed to represent what most American workers could buy with their salaries at the time. And while touring this model home, the American vice president, Richard Nixon, and the Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev, started sniping at each other about their respective countries and about cultural and technological dominance. It is known as the kitchen debate. You might have heard of it. And what it basically boils down to is that Nixon says, well, you're advanced in some ways, like with rockets. We're advanced in other ways, like with color TVs. And, you know, we have differences, whatever. Khrushchev says, hey, the United States has been around for, what, 150, about 200 years, and this is what you have to show for it? Kitchen gadgets? He says the Soviet Union has only been around for about 40 years, and they have gone to space. Their pace of technology was far greater, and even if they didn't have fancy kitchen gadgets yet, they would soon, and they'd have better ones. The kitchen debate is kind of weird to watch because these are two major world leaders and and they come off as a pair of guys who are basically having like kind of a rowdy off-the-cuff argument in a bar. But it was a very big deal at the time. But you're probably wondering, Joe, what does any of this have to do with Pepsi? After all, I said this was going to be about Pepsi. The episode's called Soviet Pepsi. And, well, it is at this 1959 exhibition where Soviet Pepsi starts to become a thing. Because tagging along with Nixon was a friend of his, a guy called Donald Kendall, a Pepsi executive. 
the United States tried to get a lot of American companies on board with the exhibition, saying to them that if you contribute to this project, you are doing good work in cultural diplomacy, in spreading America's message of prosperity and capitalism and whatever behind the Iron Curtain. Coca-Cola declined. Pepsi, however, was on board. Richard Nixon, who went to the exhibition, was friends with a Pepsi executive named Donald Kendall. Donald Kendall had a goal. When he looked at the USSR, he didn't just see the other side of the Iron Curtain. He didn't just see a geopolitical rival to the United States. No, he saw a market, a big, thirsty market that spread all the way from Eastern Europe to the edge of the Pacific. He wanted in on that, and he would do it by getting Nikita Khrushchev to drink Pepsi on camera. This is kind of a weird goal to say, hey, it's the middle of the Cold War. These two superpowers have super weapons and are pointing them at each other all the time. I'm trying to compete with Coca-Cola, one of the largest consumer products in the United States. Hey, you know what would be great for our image? If we got our major geopolitical rivals leader to drink our product on camera. Like, weird goal, but like, you do you, Starshine. And it worked. He actually got Khrushchev while he was touring this whole place with Nixon, to drink Pepsi out of a paper cup that was helpfully labeled Pepsi. The soft drink executive got one of the most powerful human beings on earth to consume his product on camera, and if you've ever worked in marketing, you know that's a hell of a thing. Khrushchev did not like Pepsi very much. He said it tasted like shoe wax. But his was not the only opinion. Plenty of other Soviet attendees tried Pepsi, and they liked it. Many of the attendees asked if it had alcohol in it, and were disappointed when it did not. But it does have sugar in it, and sugar also has its own, you know, stimulating addictive properties. It was popular. Pepsi had their foot in the door. Russia had tasted a sugary beverage, and the soft drink company had an opportunity to become a popular American thing, flourishing on the opposite side of the Iron Curtain. The American National Exhibition really did export a little bit of America to the other side of the Berlin Wall. Though not instantly. This is 1959. The Cuban Missile Crisis is just a few years away. Things went kind of cattywampus for a while between American and Soviet relations. Then they got a bit better, and then there was a fair amount of negotiation and finagling to make the Soviet Pepsi deal happen. But it did happen in 1972. But the seeds for that deal started in 1959. One of the big reasons for the holdup was the question of how the Soviet Union would pay for Pepsi, because the Soviet ruble was worthless in the U.S. and lots of other countries. You couldn't use the Soviet ruble to buy American dollars, or German marks, or British pounds, or Japanese yen, or what have you. So it wasn't like the USSR could just pay cash. They'd have to exchange something else of value for this consumer good. Like another different consumer good. Something Russia's known for. Soft drinks might be a symbol of American culture. What beverage is a symbol of Russian culture? 
what would be a really, really on-the-nose thing for Russia to trade for Pepsi-Cola? It was totally Chaya Vodka. So the Soviet Union would get Pepsi syrup, and they would bottle the beverage locally. Pepsi would get Stoli Chaya Vodka, and they would sell it to Western countries. And because they weren't technically transacting in a way that used rubles or ran afoul of any kind of international treaties, it worked out. The Soviet Union could drink American Pepsi. The U.S. could drink Russian vodka. And as someone who does not drink soft drinks but does enjoy vodka now and then, I think the U.S. of A. was getting the better end of this deal. Also as part of their deal, Pepsi got the Soviet Union to lock Coca-Cola out of the country. So Coca-Cola could not do business in the USSR at all because Pepsi said so. So this massive cola for vodka barter deal continued for a long time, from 1972 and into the end of the 1980s. In fact, before the Berlin Wall fell, Pepsi broadcast the first American-style commercial in the Soviet Union in 1988. It had Michael Jackson in it. And this is deeply weird when you think about the imagined amount of division that one associates with the Cold War. There's all this, like, standoffiness. There's all this tension. There's all this potential Armageddon. And... There's this massive cola for vodka deal that just keeps chugging along. However, in 1989, Pepsi and the Soviet Union ran into something of a problem. The Soviet war in Afghanistan. In 1989, the American political class and the public got pretty exercised about Soviet military activities in Central Asia. And Afghanistan resistance fighters were very much lionized as anti-Soviet freedom fighters. Like, a lot. Rambo 3 is all about how noble and excellent the Afghan fighters were, and it's really weird to think about that, given the U.S.'s current entanglements in Afghanistan. Now, this vodka boycott. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you that it was caused directly by Rambo 3. I would really like to tell you that. I would really like to tell you that a whole bunch of Americans went to the cinema and witnessed Sylvester Stallone riding on a horse through Central Asia, fighting along these badass Mujahideen-type guys, and they were so inspired by his masculinity and horse-riding and gun-having and all that that they said, you know what, I will put down this vodka and I will take up the cause. No more Stolichaya, as long as the USSR is in Afghanistan. Now, maybe that's what happened. After all, Rambo 3, which does not hold up at all, uh, came out in 1988, and the vodka boycott was in 1989. But really, I cannot tell you that one thing led to the other. The part of my brain that likes narratives and wants to fill in the gaps and wants to tell you a good story really wants to say that this was Sylvester Stallone's doing, but I cannot definitively do that. So, the U.S. is going through this moment where they're pro-Afghanistan and even more anti-Soviet than usual, and part of the U.S.'s reaction to Soviet activity in Afghanistan was a 1989 boycott of one of the only Russian products around, Stolichaya Vodka. So, suddenly, Pepsi has all the Stoli Chaya vodka, which was something that they could offload 
pretty easily in the United States. It's alcohol. People are into that. But now they can't sell it. So the Soviet government offered Pepsi a proposition. Instead of the usual shipment of vodka, which American consumers didn't want at the moment, would they accept something else? Specifically, 17 submarines, a frigate, a cruiser, and a destroyer. You know, a big pile of decommissioned naval hardware. Would that work for them? Pepsi said, yeah, sure. They would be happy to take the old naval hardware in lieu of vodka. With 17 submarines, one frigate, one cruiser, and a destroyer, Pepsi, for a moment, became the sixth largest navy on planet Earth. Granted, they didn't have the training, the expertise, the munitions, the supplies, or the enlisted personnel to operate any of these ships or submarines, but conceivably, when they owned all that hardware, an American soft drink company could have, you know armed a bunch of submarines and other naval vessels and waged war on a small country like Monaco or Malta or whatever and taken them over. If they suddenly wanted to violate international law and commit a bunch of war crimes, they could have done that, I guess. But fortunately for the world's small, sparsely defended island countries, Pepsi did not decide to become an imperial naval power. Instead, they sold the ships for scrap to a Norwegian company, which is a somewhat more boring, albeit lucrative thing you can do if you suddenly own several old submarines and boats. Now, that was 1989. We're coming up on the end of the Cold War. And you might be thinking, hey, the end of the Cold War, all the constraints are going to go away. Things are going to get even better for Pepsi, right? Well, no, it's the opposite of that. The end of the Cold War was not great for Soviet Pepsi. For years, the soft drink company had been the most popular Western thing in the Eastern Bloc, so a lot of consumers were used to it. In fact, some people even thought of it as kind of a Soviet thing. After the end of the Soviet Union, though, there were lots of other heretofore unknown Western things out there. There was McDonald's. There was Kentucky Fried Chicken. There was Coca-Cola. So, after the fall of the Berlin Wall in the Soviet Union... Russian consumers lined up around the block, and I mean that literally, they lined up around the block for new products like McDonald's hamburgers, and occasionally Coca-Cola, and Pepsi just didn't have that new Western product feel or pizzazz to it. It is still a big deal in Russia, though, and in other former Soviet states, and to this day, Russia remains Pepsi's second largest market behind the U.S. Nowadays, though, they just trade using you know, currency. But there's something I want to address here. There's been this kind of maybe underlying assumption you've had while I've been talking about this, that exposure to Western stuff and Western consumer products might liberalize a totalitarian regime. Somewhere like the Soviet Union might be totalitarian and authoritarian, but if they're exposed to things outside of themselves, they might loosen up just a little. Did this actually have an impact on Soviet politics or culture? Well, it certainly didn't happen in the reverse. Stolichaya vodka didn't make Americans believe in Soviet-style communism. The ideology of the country that gave us Stolichaya did not, by some transitive property, 
flow along with the product when it hit American consumers. Likewise, drinking Pepsi didn't make Soviets any more into American-style liberalism. American ideology did not somehow get distilled into Pepsi and then make its way into the hearts and minds of Soviet Pepsi drinkers. Now, cultural exchange is certainly positive. Familiarity with the art, the food, the culture, and even the consumer products of other countries is good. Any little thing that makes people from elsewhere seem even a bit more human is really positive. It is important to be familiar with cultures outside of your own. However, just throwing American products at a place like Russia is not enough to make it more American when it comes to politics, democracy, repression, or anything like that. Russia today has no shortage of American products. It's still far from being democratic. It's a dysfunctional regime run by a dictator. But now, it's a dysfunctional regime run by a dictator where you can get a Big Mac if you want. And I wish I could tell you otherwise. I wish I could tell you that that Pepsi syrup that came to Russia, that got bottled in Ukraine, that got shipped all over the Soviet Union, had some kind of magic democracy juice in it. But it did not then, and it does not now. I don't have a good ending for you. I wish I did. I wish that Pepsi was, in fact, magical democracy juice that, once imported to a dictatorial place, would make that place more relaxed and democratic and election-having, like with real elections, not the fake ones that, you know, Russia has now. I wish I could say that, but it's not. Vodka is just vodka, and Pepsi is just Pepsi. And as important as cultural exchange is, importing democracy is a whole lot harder than importing a soft drink. Well, on that downer note, uh, this is a member-supported podcast. Running a podcast has plenty of expenses, and those expenses are all supported by you. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a member. I am immensely grateful for everybody who helps to make that happen. Uh, also, if you become a member, as a thank you, there is bonus content over on weirdhistorypodcast.com that you can give a listen to. And for those of you who have already downloaded and enjoyed that, there is more of that coming. I have been doing research on a very large members-only project that I'm going to announce really soon, at the end of this week, actually. Uh, also, we are on various podcasting networks like Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Do give us ratings and reviews. I am on social media, at Joe Streckert. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.